I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. The last time somebody dramatically increased the productivity of food crops, he got the Nobel Peace Prize for it. That was Norman Borlaug just a few decades ago with the Green Revolution and basically new varieties of wheat and corn. So this can be pretty consequential. And in the kind of time frame that we just saw here, people have been working really hard to grow rice for 2,000 plus years. And uh, if it can get easier and better for the next 2,000 years, that would be swell. Norman Borlaug was supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, oil money. The C4 rice work is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, computer money. That's the century we're in, and here to take us into it is Jane Langdale. No pressure there, then, being introduced in the same sentence as Borlaug. <laughs> um, I'd like to start off by thanking Charles Mann, who came to talk to me a couple of years ago about the C4 Rice Project when he was writing an article on it. And I was explaining to him what a long-term project it was. And he said, oh, you don't know long-term till you know the Long Now Foundation. He <laughs> said, you should really, you know, go and give a talk there. And... He was the one who suggested to Stuart that he invite me, and I think thanks Stuart very much for inviting me. And it, thank you all for coming out on a Monday night. What a weird thing to do. Um, so, so what I'm hoping to do over the next hour or so is give a, a general overview to some of the problems uh, approaching, some of the problems we're approaching in agriculture as we go forward in the next 30, 40 years. And of course, the thing that's driving a lot of those problems is, as we know, is the changing world population. So it's not a surprise to you that the population is increasing, and this slide here just shows you that where those increases are. And essentially, the majority, percentage-wise, in terms of current population, are in, is in Africa. But if we look at the total population now, 7.3 billion, you know, the majority is in Asia, and that's going to stay the same. And certainly for 2050, Asia and Africa are going to have the majority of the human population. There's going to be some interesting changes, actually, during this period. So India is going to take over from China as the most populous country, and actually Nigeria is going to take over from the US as the third most populated country, or at least that's the predictions. So... We've got to feed this growing population. And some of you will have read in various places about how much we need to increase food production in order to do that. And you may have noticed that there's kind of big differences in some of those numbers. Some people say it's 70%, some people say it's 100%. So I just want to start with, by showing you where some of these numbers come from. So the, the FAO, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, held a workshop in 2009 to try and predict how much food would need to be produced in 2050. And they based this on 
food and feed, but not considering biofuels. And they said that by 2050, we'd need to be able to produce 3 billion tons of cereals a year. And they based this on the fact that they accounted for the fact that people would have to have a 3,000 calorie a day intake. So if you take that 3 billion tons, and this was in 2009 when they first produced this report, they said we'd need to increase by 70%. By 2012, they'd revised that number down to 60%. And if you actually look at last year's harvest, which was actually a bumper harvest, there were 2.5 billion tons produced. So that's only a 20% increase required over this time period, which is 0.6% per annum. So what's the big deal? We can do that. We've been doing that for a while. But that's just one estimate of how much food we're going to need to produce. And it also doesn't take into account competing land use for biofuels. But here's another way that food production estimates have been brought about. And this is based on a correlation between essentially per capita GDP in a country and the calories demanded by each individual in that country. And so in the most economically advanced countries, you will see here in the red, then the calorie demand per person is 8,000 a day. And that's way above what the FAO have um, based their estimates on. And so what this study did was essentially put uh, all of the economic groups on this graph and then extrapolated, based on previous economic growth, where these different economies would be in 2050 and then drew a line across how many calories they would be, they would be demanding. And in those estimates, we need to double food production. If, by any chance, all the economies reach the same level as the Group A, then we would have to increase food production by 175%. So you can see from those examples that there's a big range in what people think we need to do and what we might have to do. And there's also clearly quite a lot of guesswork in the predictions. But regardless of whether it's 20% or 175%, let's just look at where we are with production and supply. So this, this sorry, production and utilization. This graph here shows you in the orange is production since 2005 and is yellow is utilization. And then the gray bars are closing stocks. It's generally considered that we need 30% of production in stock for global food security. And you can see that last year, again, we had this bumper year. This is the the combined cereal supply of wheat, rice, and uh, maize across the world. And you can see that there were still 600 million tons in stocks. So it's looking okay. What's the problem? But of course, then when we look at undernourishment across the world, we've still got 800 million people undernourished. And so even though the production side looks healthy, the actual reality is not at all. And so this it's, this map shows you the darker the red, the greater the percentage of the population that are undernourished. And so this is not a new problem, that we can't get food to where it's needed most. But we do need to be thinking for the future how we're going to increase food production, particularly in Asia and Africa, given that those are the areas where most of the population increase is going to occur. So one of the things we can start by doing is thinking about yield gaps. 
So the difference between what the theoretical maximum yield of a crop is and what farming actually attains with that crop. And what these maps show for both maize and rice is where 75% of attainable yield is achieved, and that's in green. And I apologize to those who are green, red, colorblind. I tried to find these maps in other colors, and they didn't exist, so short of drawing them myself. Uh, but I will point out, 75% attainable yields are achieved in North America and in Europe for maize and a little bit of South America. And for rice, it's pretty much only China that reaches those 75% yields. So the first thing to think about when we want to think about increasing production is how can we close those yield gaps in these other areas? And the blue shows where both nutrient and irrigation is limiting and affecting those yield gaps. So what I want to do is, for the next few minutes, is just go through three of the most essential inputs for crops and think about what are the limitations, what are the real challenges for the future, and what can plant science do to address some of those issues. And so the, the three I'm going to talk about are water, phosphorus, and nitrogen. The other one in the NPK in fertilizer, potassium, I'm not going to talk about it, um, but we can talk about it in questions if you like, because I don't see it as a, such an immediate problem. So let's start with water. I don't think I need to stress, in, stress how important water is in California, not least because the cab driver yesterday spent the whole of the journey from the airport to downtown telling me how wonderful the rain was. So I, I realize that you guys appreciate the importance of water. But let's have a look at the global water deficits as they are or were over the last 10 years or so. And so what this map here is showing, and again, apologies that it's green and uh, red, is what's known as blue water scarcity. So green water is what comes out of the sky and is absorbed in the soil. Blue water is what's in all the fresh water reserves we have around the world. So in the rivers, the aquifers, the basins. And anywhere that's red here, that's Australia, most of India, a little bit of China, uh, a bit of Africa, certainly Central America, is severely depleting its water reserves. So it's using more water than it's essentially being able to put back in. And you can see that somewhere like South Africa, also in, in the yellow zone, is essentially starting to run out of water reserves. And so what does that mean for a country like South Africa when it gets its worst drought for a century, which is what's happening right now? This is a picture, a Reuters picture taken just a couple of weeks ago of a maize field in South Africa. So what is South Africa doing to address this? It's relaxing its GM import regulations. And so South Africa grows GM corn, but it has quite strict regulations on how much it can import. And it's relaxing those regulations right now so that it can get enough food for people to eat. And that's basically what we've been doing with water for a while now. So this map here shows you where water is moving around the world. So there's a huge amount of water going from the US to Mexico. There's a huge amount going from the US into Japan. And each of these arrows, the thickness of the arrow, depicts the volume of water moving across. And so this is essentially, a lot of this is soybean being moved around the world. But this is the way we're dealing with it at the moment. We're essentially moving crops to where they need to go. 
but I don't think it's orchestrated in any way. Nobody's sitting there and saying, okay, we can move this from here to there, and that will save water in this country. And you can see that because some of the, the red are the importers. The UK is a, is a water importer. That's hard to fathom. It's easy to fathom that Saudi Arabia and Algeria are water importers. Maybe it's not so easy to fathom why Japan's a water importer either. But there is no strategic overview of where the water's moving. But serendipitously, at the moment, it appears as though by doing this, 4% of the, we're saving about 4% of the blue water supplies by moving things around from areas where there's rain-fed agriculture to areas where they would otherwise be depleting reserves. But it still doesn't quite compute to me because two of those countries that were in severe water deficit, India and Australia, are water exporters. So this can't go on. It can't last. And so one of the things we need to think about is, is what can plant science do to assist with this? And I think there's reason for optimism here. I think you know, there's a lot of work going on on developing drought-resistant crops. And this is an example of a rice variety that was developed by the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines to be drought-resistant. And it's grown, it's grown throughout India. It has a very respectable uh, yield. And under drought circumstances, it has a much better yield than, uh, than other varieties. And there's also a lot of work going on in terms of trying to work out the basic biological processes underlying the, the rehydration of what are known as resurrection plants. So things like tumbleweeds that can essentially completely dry out, and then when they get water, they'll essentially come back to life. And so there is hope uh, that plant science will have a lot to contribute to this. But that's not my field, and it's not what I'm going to be mainly talking about. So we'll move on. What about phosphorus? So you all realize why you need water. You're all sitting there, some of you drinking water. When you get thirsty, you, your body needs water. Water is essential for life. You perhaps don't realize why phosphorus is so essential. So phosphorus is a highly reactive element. Uh, it's used in matches as the igniter. Um, but other than that, as an element, a pure element, it's not, much it's not found in nature. But in cells, it's absolutely crucial for life. And it's crucial for life because phosphorus is a component of DNA. And so DNA has the code, is coded with these four nucleotides, as they're called, the ATGC. But the backbone of DNA is comprised of phosphate. And so no phosphate, no DNA, no genes. And also, phosphate is required for this innocuous-looking molecule here called ATP, which has three phosphate groups on it. And this is the battery of all cells. You can't run a car on a flat battery, and you can't run a cell without ATP. And you can't make ATP without phosphorus. So no phosphorus, no plant life, no human life. Phosphorus is essential for life. So where does it come from? Well, Phosphorus is a, essentially it's mined from phosphate rock. There's nothing in the atmosphere. So it's a finite resource. It's mined. Uh, there are reserves around various countries, and I'll come into that in a minute. 90% of the phosphate rock that's mined is destined for the food chain. 
and it gets out, it gets made into phosphate fertilizer, it gets fed onto crops, it gets fed into animals and into ourselves. And then in theory, what should happen is it should go back into the land to complete the cycle. But that's not what not, is not what's happening. At least 80% of phosphate is being lost in this cycle, and it's primarily being lost into water, and it's being lost in the mining process, and it's being lost in the farm-to-fork process. And this can't go on. There is only a finite supply. We can't stop breaking... We, we have to stop breaking the cycle. We have to get that phosphate back onto the land. And one of the reasons this is urgent is because we're running out. And so this was the amount of rock extracted in 2015. There's three major countries that have the phosphate reserves at the moment, China, Morocco, and the United States. China has 135% export tax on its phosphate at the moment to prevent any of it leaving the country. It realizes what an important resource it is. The US is actually importing rock from Morocco to make its phosphate fertilizer rather than using its own reserves. The estimates are that there's only 25 years left of the US reserves. So where are most of the reserves? Essentially in Morocco. 72% of the reserves are in Morocco. And the total reserves are 69 billion tons. Now, if you divide that by that, there's 300 years left. That's the best estimate. But in fact, the quality of the phosphate rock is deteriorating. The amount of phosphate um, mined per kilogram of rock is reduced in the lower quality rock. And so in reality, it's probably, let's say, 100 years left. So we can't keep going the way we're going. We've got to get phosphate back into the land. And we've got to think more carefully about how we're applying the inorganic phosphate fertilizer that we're putting on. So let's just have a look at that as to where the phosphate fertilizer is being applied most uh, abundantly. And the darker blue means the more phosphates being put on. And you can see here it's basically China, Northern Europe, and Northern US. And it's not needed in the, qualities, in the quantities that it's being put on in all of those areas. And essentially there needs to be more precision in the amount that's put on. And the reason for that is that when you add phosphate, inorganic phosphate fertilizer to the land, then it goes on in a form that is soluble. And the plant can take that soluble form up. But within two to three weeks, that phosphate is normally absorbed or retained by binding to other molecules in the soil. And that 80% then becomes unavailable for plants. So it's in the soil, but the plants can't use it. And so really, we need to be getting to a point where the phosphate's being put on at the levels at which only that amount, 20%, is used, and it's used in those first couple of weeks. We need more precision in the phosphate application. But what can plant sciences do, if anything, about helping to retrieve some of this insoluble phosphate? Well, here there is there is hope because we know that plants behave differently 
if they are adapted to low phosphate regimes. So here's just a schematic that's just showing a plant with half of its root system showing what happens in a, in a low phosphate environment and half in a high phosphate environment. In a high phosphate environment, the, the, the roots will, you'll have the primary root here and you'll get some laterals coming out and then they'll go down into the soil. And the roots that go down will have root hairs that help essentially acquire the nutrients, but they won't have many. In contrast, if you have a, a plant that's adapted to low phosphorus, then it will be sending out more of its roots into the topsoil where there's more of the soluble phosphate to take up. And the roots that go down will have more root hairs. And these root hairs are effectively excreting chemicals that help to break down the phosphate that's there and thereby increasing the uptake of phosphate into this plant. And another key thing is that uh, fungal associations with plants, so-called mycorrhizas, allow the fungus to spread out into the soil and increase the foraging capacity that the plant has access to to pull more phosphate up. And what we know, and there's a number of labs working on this, including Jonathan Lynch's, whose image this is from Penn State, we know the sorts of genes that are involved in changing that root architecture, making plants have more root hairs. And so there are a number of groups around the world who are, are working at trying to change root architecture so that it maximizes the foraging capacity of plants. So I think there's hope for plant science to help retrieve phosphates that are currently locked up in the soil. But it's not going to help the overall issue, which is we've got to get more phosphate back into the land. And probably the only way we're going to do that is to start recycling human sewage back onto land to get the phosphate back, in my opinion. Um, Let's move on to nitrogen then. Nitrogen is a gas, as you can see here from this, there's a bubbling vat of liquid nitrogen here, and nitrogen is a gas, so it's in the atmosphere, so there's, there's more hope, there's more of it around. It's not a finite resource. And nitrogen too is absolutely essential for life, and it's essential for life for a different reason. These circles here depict the amino acids that are the building blocks of all proteins in all human cells. And if you look in every single one here, there's the chemical formula for the amino acid, and every single one has nitrogen in it. So no nitrogen, no amino acids, no proteins, no life. So we need nitrogen. The nitrogen cycle is a little more complex than the phosphate cycle because it involves the activity of a number of bacteria. And so there's a, about 80% of the atmosphere is nitrogen, so there's a lot of it. Lightning can immediately convert it into nitrate, which is the compound that plants take up in the soil. And there are denitrifying bacteria in the soil that will convert it back into atmospheric nitrogen. There are also, as some of you will be aware, nitrogen-fixing bacteria that interact with the roots of some plants and can take atmospheric nitrogen, convert it into ammonia, and then with uh, various uh, conversions by nitrifying bacteria goes into nitrate and plants take it up. So there's quite a healthy cycle here. We get nitrogen through to ammonia, through to nitrate, goes into plants, plants go into the animals, we get decay coming back into ammonia. 
So it all looks good for nitrogen, or it would all look good for nitrogen if it wasn't for the fact that we're messing it up by taking the Haber process and taking atmospheric nitrogen and converting it into ammonia for fertilizer. So in a way, even though this cycle is healthy, we've broken this one as well as breaking the phosphate one by producing massive amount of this and putting it onto the land. And you're all familiar with the effects of runoff of nitrogen and eutrophication. So let's look again at where the global nitrogen balance is. And you can see China, green here is where there's an excess of nitrogen, China, India, northern Europe, northern US, and a bit of Central America actually. Too much nitrogen going on the land, not needed. Greater need for precision. And in the areas where we really need it, in Africa, there's a deficiency. And so, again, we need to be thinking more about how we can get more nitrogen into the soils that actually need it. And here there is a long-term prospect, and it's based on those nitrogen-fixing microbes that I mentioned a minute ago. So plants such as clover and beans and peas have what are called symbiotic associations, so beneficial to both a microbe and to the plant, with both bacteria and with fungi. And so with bacteria, they form an association that results in the formation of nodules on the leaf, and with fungi, they form associations known as, with, as, known as mycorrhiza, in which it effectively extends the root system. And what's known about how these interactions are initiated is quite revealing, because it turns out, so these, this here depicts cells in the root here, the plant releases compounds that the bacteria or the fungi recognize. They're different compounds, but the principle's the same. There's a signal going out from the plant that the bacteria or the fungus recognizes. And once the bacteria or the fungus has recognized that signal, it sends a response, another molecular signal back to the plant. And that initiates this symbiotic reaction, interaction, whereby the microbe provides the plant with nitrogen and the plant provides the microbe with carbon. And so if, if every plant could be manipulated so that it had an association or was able to form an association with one of these microbes, then it would be able to fix its own nitrogen. And this is a project that is being led by Giles Aldroyd at the John Innes Centre. It's another Bill and Melinda Gates-funded project called ENSA, Engineering Nitrogen Symbiosis for Africa. And what they're trying to do is engineer cereals so that they're capable of making these symbiotic relationships with microbes and thus to be able to fix their own nitrogen, which is great. It's really fantastic if they can do this. However, if they do this, then the plants may not be able to provide the carbon unless we can increase the rate at which the plants can produce carbon. And so this will only work if plants are able to produce more carbon. And to do that, we've got to harness the sun. And so start off here with just thinking about what yield is in a plant. Yield is effectively solar energy, of which there's plenty, of which we can't control, 
times the interception efficiency, the efficiency with which a plant can actually harvest that energy. So if a plant's got a leaf that's going like that, it's not going to harvest much of the sun's energy. If it's got a leaf that's going like that, it's got a flat surface to harvest the energy. So the interception efficiency is one of the key factors of yield. The second factor is conversion efficiency. With what efficiency is the electromagnetic energy from the sun converted to biochemical energy in the form of sugars? And the third one is the partitioning efficiency. To what extent are the sugars that are produced actually partitioned in the grain? Because if they stay in the leaves, that's not going to assist with yield. So that's essentially the yield equation. And traditional breeding has selected on these factors in the following way. So 99% of the theoretical maximum inter interception efficiency has been achieved. 92% of the maximum partitioning efficiency has be been achieved. But only 34% of the conversion efficiency has been achieved. So if we want to aim at improving yield, this is where we've got to focus. And this is essentially photosynthesis. So this is the simplest form of photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide plus water in the presence of light gives you carbohydrates and oxygen. And those, that reaction, those reactions takes place in chloroplasts, or at least in higher plants. And this is, a, this is a, an electron microscopic image of a chloroplast, and you can see that it's a membrane-bound organelle, and each of these dark patches are regions of uh, very highly dense membranes with large surface areas. And then these white blobs are the starch that's produced as the product of photosynthesis. So what happens is that in these membranous regions where there's high surface area, then light splits water, produces oxygen, and then the hydrogen atoms that are released that are highly energetic go through a series of reactions in these membranes that result in the production of our little friend ATP, the cell's battery. So these light reactions provide the energy for the next phase of photosynthesis, which is where carbon dioxide is fixed into carbohydrates and it gets deposited in the starch grains. So what's so inefficient about this process? It splits water, produces energy, the energy is used to make the sugars. Well, it falls down with a protein called rubisco. And this is a depiction of a cell. The black is the cell. The green is the chloroplast within the cell. And what happens is that CO2, carbon dioxide, is fixed by this enzyme rubisco into a sugar that has three carbons, hence C3 photosynthesis. And the majority of plants are C3 photosynthesizing plants. So they take CO2, fix it with rubisco into a three-carbon compound that then goes off to produce carbohydrate. <coughs> rubisco is the most abundant protein on the planet. 50% of the leaf nitrogen is rubisco. So 
A lot of that nitrogen fertilizer is going into Rubisco. The problem with Rubisco is that in addition to fixing CO2 into these three carbon compounds that go on to make sugars, it interacts with oxygen. And when it interacts with oxygen, it only forms one of these three carbon compounds, and it produces this other compound which is toxic to the plant. And so the plant then has to go through a detoxification process to actually get rid of this toxic molecule. And by doing that, it decreases the efficiency of photosynthesis. And so, whilst Rubisco is clearly essential for life, it's also very inefficient. And so one of the goals of this next project, RIPE, Realizing Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency, is to try and engineer Rubisco to be more efficient. Why can't it just be engineered so that it doesn't see oxygen, so that it only sees carbon dioxide? And then you wouldn't have to go through this wasteful detoxification process. And so this is another Gates-funded project, and we're all working together, ENSA, RIPE, and the C4 RICE, to maximize um, efficiency. Uh, these guys are working primarily on trying to increase components of C3 photosynthesis, including trying to engineer Rubisco so that it doesn't react with oxygen. We're taking a slightly different view, uh, and it's driven by what we see in evolution. Evolution has not improved the efficiency of Rubisco. However, C4 plants have effectively got around the problem. So here again is that C3 reaction, CO2 being fixed by Rubisco, but there's oxygen hanging around that might mess it up. So what have C4 plants done? They've done this. And I'll just take a minute here. So essentially what they've done <laughs> is they've split photosynthesis between two cells. So in a C3 plant, this happens in all of the cells in the leaf. In a C4 plant, there's two different types of photosynthetic cells, which for now we're going to call an outer cell and an inner cell, with the outer being towards the outer edge of the leaf, and therefore the one in contact with carbon dioxide and oxygen. You can see in the inner cell, this last bit of the reaction is exactly the same as this. So fundamentally, at the end of the day, CO2 gets fixed by Rubisco into three-carbon compound and into carbohydrates. But there's all this other stuff first. And this other stuff is effectively a turbocharger. It's there to concentrate carbon dioxide. And the way it does that is in this outer cell, carbon dioxide enters and it's fixed by an enzyme that is blind to oxygen. It's totally insensitive to oxygen. It doesn't care whether the oxygen's out here or even here, sat right on top of it. It ignores it. It's a very efficient carbon fixer. And it's fixed into a four-carbon compound, hence C4 photosynthesis. And that compound is then shuttled into this inner cell type where the carbon dioxide is released from it. And by doing that, what you're doing is concentrating CO2 at the site of Rubisco. 
In addition, by doing this in the inner cell, you're keeping rubisco away from oxygen. So it's a double win. You're effectively increasing the efficiency with which photosynthesis takes place. I'll come back to some of this detail later, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, but for now, I'm going to leave it at that and say, well, why would we be thinking about the C4 solution when it's so complicated? Surely those guys who are thinking about engineering Rubisco to ignore oxygen must be on a better, better track. But C4 has evolved over 60 times during Lampant evolution. And this is just uh, what's known as a phylogram, that essentially every single line is a flowering plant species, and every red line is a C4 species. So not only has C4 evolved over 60 times, it's evolved in all sorts of areas of the tree, in diverse families. And it all happened about 25 to 35 million years ago. So even though what I just showed you on the previous slide looked incredibly complex, it seems to have happened over and over again in independent families. So how difficult can it be? <laughs> so let's see what's so good about it. So C4 gives you better yield. This is a field in, at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines a few years ago, and they planted rice in the front and maize at the back. They planted it around the same time, and it was subject to the same environmental conditions. And you can see very clearly that even if we don't consider grain yield, the biomass produced by this maize crop at the back is much greater than that produced by the rice crop. And when the grain yield was considered, you can see again that the maize had much greater yield in terms of grain. Maize is a C4 plant. Rice is a C3 plant. So one hypothesis is that the reason this produces more biomass is because it's C4. And I give, sometimes I show this slide at schools and they go, but, but it could just be because it's maize. It might not be because it's C4. But this in the middle here is a weed, and it's a C4 weed. This weed has not been selected for productivity or for yield, and you can see again that the biomass produced by this weed is much greater than the C3. So I think we can safely say that C4 crops give better yield than C3. They also have better radiation use efficiency. So what this graph here shows you is the standing dry weight at harvest. So again, it's effectively the biomass and the length of the growing season. So how long have these plants been exposed to light? And the triangles are all C4 plants, and the circles are all C3 plants. And you can see that the longer you leave it, the more light it harvests, then the more biomass you get. But you can also see that the, that slope is much steeper if you have a C4 plant, regardless of which C4 plant it is. So they use light more efficiently. They also use nitrogen more efficiently. So on this graph here, what you've got is how the rate of carbon dioxide fixation against the leaf nitrogen content. Yellow is C4, green is C3. And essentially what you can see is that for less nitrogen, you get more CO2 assimilation. And the reason for that is that because C4 photosynthesis is more efficient, only about 30% of the leaf nitrogen is 
Rubisco instead of 50%. So it's a direct relationship between how much Rubisco is needed to carry out the photosynthesis. So less nitrogen, less Rubisco, still as efficient. And finally, C4 plants have better water use efficiency. And this is a slightly different um, way of looking at this. These are a bunch of different species from a single genus of plant called Flavaria. And Flavaria has species that are C3, that are intermediate between C3 and C4, and are C4. And what you're looking at here is the amount of CO2 fixed per mole of water. And so in these C3 plants, the dark green here, you essentially get three millimoles of CO2 fixed per mole of water. But in these C4 ones at this end, you get twice as much. So you've got much better water use efficiency in the C4 plants. So the bottom line is that if you could convert C3 to C4, in theory, you could increase yield by 50%, you would improve nitrogen use efficiency, and you could probably double water use efficiency. So why wouldn't you do it? And this effectively is where the C4 rice project began. And it began in 2006 when John Sheehy, who was working at the International Rice Research Institute, called a workshop for what was then the remaining few people who knew anything about C4 photosynthesis on the planet and called us all into a room and said, now's the time we should be thinking about whether or not we can convert C3 plants into C4. Previously, it had been an impossible dream, but technology had moved on, next generation sequencing, you could sequence lots of genomes. Uh, you could now finally transform rice, which hadn't been possible beforehand, so you could get genes inserted into rice. And he brought us all together, and they're essentially scientists from 12 uh, different institutions around the world, eight different countries. And we decided that, yes, if it was going to happen, now was the time to, to start it. And this is the map that we laid out. It's been slightly tweaked since then. This is the updated one. And we figured that it would take about 30 years. And that phase one should be about building a toolkit. Could we get all the bits and pieces together that we needed to be able to insert genes into rice, to be able to think about which genes to put in? Phase two was what we called proof of concept, having got those things put together. Could we actually at least show some indication that we knew what we were doing? The third phase would be a step back. Having done that, you know, could we really understand mechanism in C4 plants, let alone engineer C3? The fourth would be engineering, and the fifth would be breeding. So step back, you don't even have to step back to imagine this, but step back to 2006, you're thinking of a 30-year project. And you're thinking about it in rice, you're thinking about it as a, a project for developing countries. Where do you go for money? National funding agencies would not fund something like this. It's too big, it's too long-term, and there's much more urgent things that need funding in terms of trying to keep home institutions going when you're looking at things like National Science Foundation or the research, uh, research councils in the UK. So that's not going to work. 
You say, okay, it's a, it's a project for developing countries. What about overseas development agencies? They're not going to fund it. They're too busy putting money into what's needed now. Zika, Ebola, whatever the current crisis is, that's where their money's going to be. It's not going to go into something like this. What about the ag biotech companies? They're not going to be interested. They have no idea whether there's going to be a product, and they're only going to invest if there's definitely going to be a product that's going to make money. So we went to the Gates Foundation, and Gates funded the first three phases. We don't know whether they'll fund any more, but what they have done is they've de-risked the project because we now are at a point where I think it's going to work. It's still going to take a long time. Um, but without their investment in the first place and their vision to get behind something like this, it would never have got off the ground. So why did we choose rice? We could have picked any C3 plant. We could have picked wheat. There's as much wheat grown as rice. Well, partly because it was initiated from the International Rice Research Institute, but rice is really Asia's lifeline. The if you look at this graph here, what you're looking at is the percentage total calorie intake um, in different countries and in Asia as a whole. So the, the dots are the across Asia averaged. Even now, 30% of the daily calories are in the form of rice. In Bangladesh, it's still 70% of the daily calorie intake from rice. And 90% of global production is in Asia. Last year was the year, the highest year of rice moving around the country, and there was still only 9% of the world's production was exported. 140 million rice farmers in Asia, and most of them on small farms. And their yield average is about 4.6 tons per hectare, and if we look at projections for the future, that needs to increase rapidly. And the current breeding programs are getting less than 1% yield. So... Rice is extremely important for Asia. And let's look at the supply and demand. So this is a very similar graph to what I showed you earlier for the global cereal production. And there, if you remember, there was a nice healthy difference between production utilization and there was a nice healthy stock level that wasn't being depleted. That's not the case here. So here we've got utilization in orange, production in blue, and you'll see that last year, production dipped below utilization. And so the stocks had to be drawn down. And also here, the stocks are not at the 30% level that you would like to see them at. And so there is a great need to increase yields in, rice, in Asian rice growing areas. And if we look at that, how it's grown in Asia, on the basis of land area, 50% is irrigated but a quite significant proportion is rain-fed. And if we compare the yield of irrigated versus rain-fed, it's quite substantial. So on the irrigated, the average yield is about six tons per hectare. In the US here, you get about nine tons per hectare. Hybrid rice in China will get about 15 tons per hectare, but that's where they're throwing all that nitrogen and phosphate at it. And then the rain-fed rice is, is maximum two, two and a half tons per acre. So if anything could be done to improve the rain-fed rice, at least, it would make a huge difference, both in Asia and Africa. And the bottom line 
it, when you consider all of the things, take all the things into account, such as reduced land use, is that the number of people dependent on a hectare of rice-producing land in Asia in 2010 was 27. By 2050, it's got to be 43, which happens to be a 50% increase. So, why wouldn't you try and convert C3 rice into a C4 plant? Because, in theory, it can increase rice yield by 50%. So, what do we need to do? We need to take the C3 plant, we need to change the leaf anatomy, we need to change the biochemistry, do a bit of fine-tuning, and we'll have a C4 plant. No problem. So let's come back to this slide, which you laughed at when I put it up the first time. So here's C3, here's C4. The biochemistry of C4 was first discovered 50 years ago, and we've known all of the genes that encode all the required enzymes and the transporters since at least the late 1980s. So, not a big deal. We know what genes we're dealing with. But everything in blue here, with a square around it, is an enzyme that needs to be modified so that it only functions in one of these two cell types. Every dot is a transporter protein that is responsible for moving products out of the chloroplast or into, from one cell into the other. And so there's quite a lot of genes that need to be modified to achieve this, but we do know what they are, so that's good. Contrast that with this. So here's a rice leaf, and it's, you've got a vein here, with a ring of cells around it which have no chloroplasts in it. And then you've got a whole bunch of cells in between with chloroplasts in, depicted down here schematically. And then you've got another vein. And all of these light blue cells here are carrying out C3 photosynthesis. Rubisco is fixing CO2. If you compare that to a maize leaf, which is carrying out C4 photosynthesis, then hopefully you can see a few differences. One is these cells around the veins are packed full of chloroplasts, and the veins are much closer together. So the maximum you have is a vein, one of these, which I'm now going to give you the name, the inner bundle sheath cell, then a mesophyll cell, another mesophyll cell, and a bundle sheath cell. So a very different anatomy, an anatomy that is the way it is because essentially it's these pairs of cells that are interacting for the C4 biochemistry. We have no idea what regulates the difference between this and this anatomy. We had no idea what genes were responsible at the start of the project. We're getting there now, and I'll tell you a little about, a bit about that in a minute. But what we decided we'd do at the start was try and get C4 biochemistry in a module in the rice leaf just next to the veins. Let's just ignore the fact for the moment that the veins aren't close enough together to be a true C4. Let's see if we can get the biochemistry in these two cells. And to do that, all we need to do is switch Rubisco plus three other genes on in this cell, switch Rubisco off in this cell, and switch seven other genes on. And 
we know what the genes are, as I said, but I just want to put in here at this point that, to my knowledge, the most elaborate GM plant, transgenic plant that's been made to date is golden rice, and it has two genes in it. So we need to modify at least 10 genes. How do we do that? Well, we start by, we can insert genes into rice. We start with a seed and we grow it on a media that induces the rice to, to produce this sort of mushy looking tissue. And these are essentially naive cells. They don't know whether they should be a root or a shoot. And so you can catch them in their naive phase and put a piece of DNA in them. And then they take that DNA up and this is just an example of a gene that's been put in that induces a blue color so we can see what's happening. And then we put these lumps of naive tissue with the gene we've put into them back onto a different media, it regenerates, and you get rice plant. And that takes about five months. And then what you can do, given that we're trying to get 10 genes in, and we've just put one in here, is, oh, sorry, step back. So one of the key things is that I said that we had to be able to regulate which cells the genes were switched on in. So some genes had to be on in the inner cells and some had to be on in the outer cells, which means we need switches that act in those cells. And that was actually part of the first phase where we were developing our toolkit. How are we going to find switches that will only work in one cell or the other? And I'm just going to show you that we did find switches. And I, we, I'm just showing here the switches driving, again, that gene that gives the blue color. So here's a switch that only works in the outer cells. You can see that the inner cells around the vein are clear. And here's a switch that only works in the inner cells. So we were able to identify pieces of DNA that would act as switches to switch genes on in the right, ce right cell type and at the right time. And so having done that, we started to introduce the genes one by one and then started a crossing program. And that is a, this is just an example here with four genes. And you start with your four lines and you cross them together. And if you cross gene one with gene two, a quarter of the progeny will have both. And then you cross this to this and a 16th will have four. And by this time you're going nuts because they're all over the, they're not being targeted to any specific place in the genome. So they're all segregating independently and the numbers get way out of hand. And you've only got four at this point and we're aiming for 10. But we have managed to make a line with five of these genes in, and there is some evidence that it has changed metabolism. We're not quite sure how, um, and we're in the process of investigating that. But meanwhile, and this is one of the, the sort of lessons of these long-term projects, meanwhile, technology's moved on, and had we known what we know now when we started this project, we wouldn't have even started this way. So. Even though we will use these plants that we've generated, which have the five genes stack in them, to try and understand something about the biology, that's not the way we're going to go. We've got to start again. And the reason we can start again is due to the advent of synthetic biology and genome engineering. And I've just drawn this very simple slide here to show you exactly what we're, we're doing now. So we have libraries of parts we have switches, we have genes that encode enzymes, we have genes that encode transporters. And 
Some of you will have heard Drew Andy talk about BioBricks. It's exactly the same principle. You can click these things together in any which way you want. And so very easily, we can make a construct that has all of these genes on it. So instead of inserting them one by one, we can now insert six at a time. And not only can we insert six at a time, we can decide where they're going to go. So we can... I can't see the bottom of my slide now. I've just clicked on. Um, so let's say we want to target to this region here with the light green and the, the olive green next to it. Essentially, we introduce these, this piece of DNA, which has got all of these switches and enzymes on it, at the same time as introducing some molecular scissors. The molecular scissors will cut this DNA, the targeted region of the genome here, and allow us to insert that fragment. And now we have a plant that's got six genes, and if we cross it to another one that's got six genes, a quarter of those progeny will have 12 genes, and that's much more manageable. So we're going back now and starting to reintroduce the biochemistry through this uh, better method. And there's no doubt as we go forward for the next 20 years, the same thing's going to happen. We're going to hit some, come across something that makes it much quicker, and it's going to be quicker to start again than keep going with what we're doing. So meanwhile, while that's going on, let's just come back to this to end the talk. I said we knew nothing about how this anatomy develops in maize, so how can we possibly think about how to engineer it in rice? And that's something that we've been working on over the past seven or eight years. And the way we approached this was to capitalize on the fact that if you look in a maize plant, if you look at the regular leaves, which we call foliar leaves, they have the C4 anatomy, the close vein spacing, these two photosynthetic cell types. But if you look in the leaves around the ear, so the husk leaves that you shock off every time you eat an ear of corn, they have these, this intermediate anatomy, whereby there's a bit of C4-like around the vein, but then there's still lots of cells in between. So the anatomy, in terms of the vein spacing, is more C3-like than C4. And if you look at the timing at which they develop, so if you take this, you're looking at schematics of cross-sections of the leaf, at very early stages in development, the two leaves, the foliar and the husk, look the same. You have these very immature cells, and you get veins starting to form, and then cells forming around them. A bit later in development, there's a clear difference. So there's a stage at which the leaf's developing where the key events are happening, when those veins are being put in. And knowing when this stage is enabled us to take samples from all of these different stages and essentially get the sequence of every single gene that was expressed in each of the samples. And by doing that, we got a database of 30,000 genes. And we first looked at it to see which genes are off in husk and on in folia. We refined that slightly to say the ones that are on in folia need to be on at the right time. They've got to be on at that time when all the action's going on, when those extra veins are being formed. And that got us to 283 genes. We then spent much longer than we had doing 
this analysis, reading and thinking. <laughs> trying to understand everything there was to know about those 283 genes, trying to rationalize which ones we should actually focus our attention on, because the next stage was going to be very time-consuming. And we got it down to 70. And with those 70, what we then did was we did two things. We turned them off in maize by inserting transgenes to turn them off. And we asked the question, when we turn them off, does the anatomy of the maize leaf revert to look more like rice? If so, we have a gene that has a role in producing this anatomy in maize. We also turned them on in rice and asked, can we convert this to this? If the answer was yes, it doesn't mean necessarily that that gene has a role in maize to develop that anatomy, but who cares? <laughs> it means we can use it to change the anatomy in rice. And doing that, we're now down to about 20 genes. And we can probably refine it over the next year or so down to a, a slightly lower number. So, where are we? We still have a challenge. We think for the anatomy, we may have to change the behavior of 12 genes. For the biochemistry, about 10. And who knows for the last bit. But we're optimistic. This is the team. We work very well together. Um, you will see from the faces on this slide that there are very few are this one here, who are not going to be retired by the time 2039 comes. And so, really, the team are these guys here, who are the young students and the postdocs who work on the project. And I have never worked on a project that has had so much interest from young people, students who want to work on it and want to come and join us. And we need them. We need the more hands and minds on this project, the faster we'll get to where we're going. And with that, I will leave you with this, and thank you very much for your attention. You know, I've been saying a lot wrongly that uh, digital code is relatively easy to reverse engineer the biocode is impossible to reverse engineer, and you're just proving that it's not true. You can reverse engineer it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, first question has come up from several people, so we should go into it a little more deeply. Why rice? Why rice, I guess, both from the kind of demand standpoint and from the, uh, is it a plant which is going to be workable compared to, say, wheat or something like that? So, rice, rice has a major advantage over wheat, and that is in terms of its genome structure. So, rice has two copies of its genome. It's a diploid. Wheat has six. So, if you're going to try and engineer or modify things in, a, in a, any background, if you're only battling against two endogenous copies, you're in a better chance of winning the fight than battling against six. That doesn't mean that, I mean, there certainly are long-term aspirations to, that if we can make it work in rice, then why not in wheat? I mean, the same problems apply. 
in terms of yeah, growing other, wheat. Other food crops besides rice and wheat you'd like to convert? Uh, we could do soybean, we could do barley, we could do, we could do any, we could do canola, anything. Bring it on. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Rodriguez asks, are there any downfalls of C4 over C3 that are known, and what are the sort of the, the I guess, usage unknowns that might emerge here? So the downfalls, this kind of, so often I get asked this question a slightly different way in terms of why are there not more C4 plants? If it's so good, why isn't, why isn't everything evolved no, to be C4? No, why the hell aren't there more C4 yeah. plants? So, so the answer is because there's a cost. So for every molecule of carbon dioxide that gets fixed in a C3 plant, it uses three of those ATP molecules, three of the battery charge. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a C4 plant, it uses five. And that cost is worth it in high temperature because in high temperature, dissolved oxygen effectively is more likely to react with Rubisco and make photosynthesis inefficient. So it's a balancing act. In high temperature, then C4 definitely wins. In low temperature, it doesn't. So what we really need to do is have an inducible, temperature-inducible C4. So once we've worked out how to do C4, we need to get it all under a temperature-inducible switch so that as the temperature goes up, it goes C4, and then it goes back to C3. Temperature is going up with global warming. <laughs> no, but locally, locally in a field. You know, you have cold days. It was cold here yesterday. So are the, are the C4 plants going to be more or less comfortable with global warming and droughts and things like that, do you think? More. More. How much more? <laughs> that much more. Wow. <laughs> I think that you can interpret that as an I don't know. <laughs> um, here's a kind of a nutrition uh, question from Adam Flynn. The C3 plants, at least judging by the list you showed, seem to be richer in micronutrients. Are there any uh, unintended consequences downstream in relation to the micronutrients in these plants? I think that list might have been skewed by the fact that the C3 plants on it, as far as I remember, weren't cereals, and cereal grains generally have less right, micronutrients. So you'll have a C4 plants with all the micronutrients intact? Yeah. You think? Yeah. Or you can add some, right? I mean, mm. I mean it, it, even with 20 genes, mm -hmm. my prediction is that by the time we get to it, It'll just be one chunk of DNA that goes in. Well, that's interesting. When it's not going to be. It doesn't matter where it is so much. We'll get it in, and we'll get it into a benign region of the genome where it doesn't affect anything else. And so, what that means, if it's a single gene, is you can cross it to anything. So, you mm -hmm. can cross it out into all the different varieties that are around at the moment the high nutrient, the drought resistant, the flood tolerant, whatever. It'll just be one allele going, one trait being crossed in. Do you want to just add a chromosome that has all this rational coding on it? That's a very interesting question, and the technology's not there to be able to do that at the moment. Doesn't mean it won't be. If it comes, that sounds like something you would a prefer. A mini chromosome. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> you've talked mainly about the C4 aspects, which would have you know, a whole bunch of benefits. Um, can these things, uh, rice is an annual plant, is that right? Could it be made perennial? Rolla Demshak here was asking yeah, this earlier. The, um, plant once, harvest forever, yum yum. 
I mean, the ancestor of rice was a perennial, so domesticated rice was a perennial. But I, I guess that's, I guess my answer to that will be that's a different set of questions and it'll just be another trait in the toolbox that'll have another 20 genes on it, then we'll just mm. cross the two together. Yeah, the, the, you did a wonderful case of proving how relatively few genes may be needed to get the structural impact and then the, the mechanisms for the better photosynthesis. Um, that's not that many genes in terms of what CRISPR can do these days. Uh, I don't want to go on about our woolly mammoth, but uh, George Church has moved 16 genes uh, affecting four woolly mammoth traits into living elephant cell line, and they're there and seem to be doing their job. Uh, doesn't uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 capability just sort of open up? You're not so fiercely limited to the number of genes that you can mess with? No, that's absolutely true, and that's why, you know, we know for sure we can get seven in at the same time into rice at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it'll be more, more than that, way more than that. And C4, and, sorry, CRISPR came along kind of unexpectedly for everybody, and it's just, you know, there's 30,000 labs that are using CRISPR now. Do you see that as the kind of trend that might affect your 39-year timeline uh, to make it go quicker or just make it actually plausible? <laughs> I think it will make it plausible. Um, I think our biggest problem with, with the timeline is that, you know, this whole synthetic biology idea, you know, design, test, build, design, build, test even, is our problem is the build takes so long to make the transgenic lines mm -hmm. that by the time we get to testing, you know, and then go back to the beginning, it's a, it's a much, it's not a yeast cell. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, it's, it's at least a year for each cycle of that. So when you went from you know, this, you know, three generations to get maybe four G, uh, from the sort of breeding sequence to screw it, let's do it all at once, was that like a hard shift in the whole process and a bunch of people are out of work? I mean, what happened? Some skills that you developed at great expense are suddenly worthless. How's that process work out when you are, you know, basically de-skilling your own uh, capabilities as you move along? Um, that's not an easy question to answer. There are certainly, er the, there's certainly areas of the project that are, are no longer attracting s as many resources as other areas. <laughs> Is that the democratic? So the, <laughs> you have young scientists showing up. Uh, and this is a fast-moving field, and to a certain extent, you like, presumably the, you got this kind of great combination of people who've been focusing on C4 and on rice for uh, many decades now, and also people showing up able to grab whatever is the current technology and sprint to the horizon with it. How's that intergenerational play playing out? It's possible to achieve a good balance because at the end of the day, we've got to go back into a rice breeding program. And mm. places like Erie are the people who are going to be doing that. So, so I guess the way to say it is that the first couple of phases were very much focused on being able to grow lots of rice and do mm. lots of screens. Very labor intensive, um, required the right growth conditions, and they were focused primarily at Erie. Mm -hmm. This third phase we're in is is essentially taking a step back now and saying, right, we need to really understand the genetics of what's happening in maize so that we can engineer. And given all this new technology, we can do that a bit faster. 
And so the focus has shifted slightly for this phase, but it will undoubtedly shift back. Was your understanding, all, people are understanding maize all that much better. Uh, there must be some side effect benefits for maize with that understanding. So are the, are the corn people getting re-excited by some of this examination? Yeah, I mean, corn. The, the best thing you can do for corn is make it nitrogen fixing. Then corn people would be very happy. Say more about that. Can you? Can well, what, the ideal would be a C4 nitrogen fixing cereal, not a all C4 nitrogen fixing cereals. And what's your guess on that? How many genes does it take to get those things to be mutualistic with the bacteria and fungi? Um, I don't know what Giles is current estimate is for the ENSA project for the nitrogen, but it's probably about the same, 20. Okay, so we're headed toward, uh, I mean, that's not only greater efficiency in terms of fertilizer, it's basically creating its own fertilizer. Yeah, so then we've only got left with the phosphate problem. Then we come back to human sewage. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of questions relate to, uh, well, you know, other things happen. Uh, what if you wind up with a uh, C4 rice that uh, fixes its own uh, nitrogen and doesn't taste very good? Sir, You'll uh, breed it into. So the lines we're actually the lines we're actually trying to do the manipulation with now. You wouldn't want to eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are model lines. That comes later. That comes later. Yeah. Because you mentioned when we were talking before uh, this evening that. Um, uh, golden rice, of, about which there's been much hope and much controversy. Um, they, it sounded like at, at Erie and IRRI in the Philippines, they, were, they got a, a golden rice that had the, the extra ingredients that people were so glad of, um, but its yield went down. Yeah. Uh, how does that happen? What's the workaround for that kind of uh, <laughs> unexpected and unwelcome side effect? Well, when, essentially, whenever you make one of these insertions, there's a, you don't just do it once. There's a number of lines you can select from. So having found that, they go back to another event and mm -hmm. start with that. See what an event is. I think. An event is when you put a piece of DNA into a plant and it inserts somewhere in the genome. That is an event. You can take the same piece of DNA, insert it into the same genome, not the same individual, but the same genome, it can go into a different part in the genome, that's a different event. So depending where it lands in each event, it may have different knock-on effects to what the plant does. That won't happen with CRISPR, because you'll target it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I've always wondered, why is it called in an event? Because it happened, it was an event. And, and, and actually, actually, for the person who was actually doing the experiment, it probably really was an event. Yes, I've got it. <laughs> it's worked. I see. Another word for triumph. Yeah. Um, Alexander Rose asks, if you achieve all of this, how do you get C4 rice into all the fields that need it? Uh, which is, as we saw in the opening uh, film, vast quantities of, of different peoples, different lands, different soils, different climates, uh, different uh, tastes, uh, and you've got one mechanism. How does it get out to the variety? How many varieties of rice are there? I think Erie has close to 100,000 different varieties or something. Right, and how many are the major, how many crop rices? That's 100,000 different kinds? Yeah. Okay. Um, They're not all so grown every year, but, <laughs> but 
essentially they, I mean, Erie are really good at taking a new trait and mm -hmm. getting it very quickly into a large range. I mean, not 100,000 all in one go, but a large range of different varieties that hmm. are grown by upland farmers, lowland farmers, mm -hmm. paddy farmers, in, in temperate, in tropical, and they, they have that system down really well. So as long as, you, as long as you have a trait that is just at a single locus so that it's not separating mm -hmm. every time you cross it, then, then that's, what they're, that's what they're brilliant at doing. So we could have 100,000 varieties of C4 rice? In 10,000 years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Apparently many people have been asking about the 9,000 uh, uh, number that was mentioned there. Um, don't we need just 2,000? Calories per day. Calories per day. Um, so the difference between just enough I gather there's 2,000, or is that really not enough? 3,000. 3,000 is what FAO did. And 9,000, um, is that food wastage in some sense, or nutrition wastage? Or it's what? partly food wastage, but it's also meat. Meat, okay. Because it, it's 10, 10 kilograms of grain for one kilogram of live cow. Is rice fed to animals? No, rice isn't, no. Not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris asks that public health officials obviously have issues with human waste on crops. Uh, what do you tell them to ease their fears, if any? Because this whole uh, cycling of... Uh, well, they don't, actually. So, so believe it or not, when I sort of was thinking oh, really? about this, I actually did some reading about sewage treatment plants, which was um, a bit bizarre. But there's quite a few, particularly in this country, but also in the UK, that have a process to make something called struvite pellets that is actually recycling human waste into pellets that will act as slow-release phosphate pellets. But the predictions are that it will only provide about 3 million tonnes of the 24 million tonnes needed annually. But it, it's happening now. Huh. In various sewage plants across the US, right now, you have struvite facilities. So we're already eating pre-eaten food. <laughs> so it reminds me of a sign over my father's toilet in our summer cottage that said, do not put anything in the toilet unless you've eaten it first. <laughs> we could edit that bit out of the video, can't we? <laughs> You guys haven't even begun to deal with the GMO controversy because you're years out beyond it. Do you think it'll be basically gone by the time C4 rice hits the market? Or do you think people will be saying, I don't want any C4 rice in my country or my food because there's probably something wrong with it? Who knows? It flip-flops, doesn't it? I mean, you guys used to embrace it fully, and now you don't. And in Europe, you still cannot import any GM crop for human consumption, you can for animal consumption. Who knows? I mean, as an aside, 70% mm -hmm. of the animal feed in the UK comes from GM soybean from Brazil. Does everybody pretend not to notice, or is there a, a, a specific workaround on that? No, animal feed's fine. But it used to come from Romania. 
But when Romania joined the EU, they could no longer grow GM soybean. So now it gets shipped from Brazil and the EU pays Romania subsidies because their farmers can't grow the crop. I sense there's other efficiency, inefficiencies in the process than just the difference between C3 and C4. Um, is the screaming need for food and for higher yield food widely enough understood that people are actually trying to cut out uh, stupid problems like that or the food wastage problems and so on? I don't, I, not yet where there's no need, right? But the South Africa example that mm -hmm. I showed, you know, as soon as there's a need, things get relaxed. Ah, say a little more about what happened in South Africa. So they're having drought. They're having a serious drought right okay. now. And, and so what? they're seriously worried that they can't feed the population. So they have relaxed, or they're talking, I don't know whether they've even agreed, this was just a week or so ago, talking about relaxing the import regulations so that mm -hmm. they can get GM food from elsewhere. GM corn in particular, probably here, some of those stockpiles. Um, and because they have regulations about how much can actually be stored GM food. They, they grow it. They're yeah, happy growing GM. I was wondering, GM, what's the problem? But there's some convoluted system where they can't store more than a certain amount. But they're, they're considering, and I don't know whether it's been decided yet, relaxing that so that food can come in. So the bottom line is if people are really hungry, then principles go to hell. Aha. Uh -huh. We might have to edit that bit as well. So when <laughs> <laughs> Please. So you can almost sort of map where that transition is going to occur uh, from where the hunger is likely to occur, and people just say, screw it, and let's do it. And, yep. um, do it whatever way works. Pragmatism replaces ideology when... Um, What's the Bertolt Brecht line about uh, food first, then morals? <laughs> You've been at this how long? Didn't anybody tell you it's rude to ask a lady her age? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, sorry. At the Long Now Foundation, if you haven't been at you know less than ten years, uh, you know we were not even interested. I, so, are you uh, talking about C4 rice or how long I've been working on how to how maize develops that anatomy? Uh, how long on rice and C4 rice, yeah? Since 2000, we first got funding 2008, that's when we kicked off. And you expect, uh, when will people here, probably not including me, uh, get to eat C4 rice, do you think? 2040. 2040. At which point the world population will be on the order of eight or nine billion, I guess. And then you get to the interesting issue of rice is, as I understand, a very labor-intensive food yeah. crop. There's a lot of people, mostly women, out there just all day long in the muck, planting and, and reaping. There's lots of little children with, with pieces of string that they pull like this to keep the birds off, particularly in Banawi, in those rice terraces. That's how they keep the birds off the kids just pull a string backwards and forwards. The string is making the stuff. Keeping the birds away. So they're doing so they that instead of going brain. to school. Mm -hmm. uh, 
people are moving to the cities. And this is huge areas of rural countryside, and in some cases mountain countryside. Uh, it sounds incredibly laborious, boring, uh, and uh, life-consuming. So where do we get the people to grow all the C4 rice? Mechanization is something that's already starting to be introduced in rice farming. In fact, the, the, it's actually leading to rice straw for the first time. And people are trying to decide what uses for rice straw because where they are bringing in harvesters, there's now straw to be dealt with. Hmm. So there's a new use, so, I mean, my assumption has been, frankly, that robots will take over agriculture <laughs> by and large. Little uh, small things that go through, And yeah. it's already happening to some, it's precision agriculture, as it's called in the Midwest, is, you know, you turn the combine loose in the fields and it's sensing the soil and the moisture and the weather and putting just the right seed and just the right fertilizer together kind of on its own. And there may be a guy in the cab, but he's online uh, you know, <laughs> Surfing. having a social day. Um, <laughs> rice is not exactly big flat fields, uh, largely. I mean, many of them are not. So do you see just more and more sophisticated robots to manage this? Or are, you, are people working on making rice less of something that requires children to jiggle it to keep the birds away? Uh, or that requires endless quantities of women hand planting these things or, or you know, collecting the rice? I mean, certainly the planting now. I mean, the, in Asia, they haven't got to this, the point where they're planting it with airplanes like you do in California, but mechanization in terms of planting the seedlings out and also harvesting is starting to come in. It is. Yep. Are some nations more eager to move ahead with uh, basically GM rice and eventually C4 rice than others? Um, you mentioned Bangladesh. Bangladesh is, yeah, Bangladesh is very key. So Bangladesh is trying the new golden rice variety. Bangladesh has also been very, um, they've adopted the BT Brinjal, the, I'm trying to think, I've got, too many words, I've got too many words in my head now, BT Brinjal, which is aubergine, which is eggplant, which right, right. <laughs> Brinjal. So they're very, they've adopted that and it's, it's, they're, they're trial, they've got a, a research institute that's trialing the golden rice and they're very keen to do so. And you can see why they're, you know, essentially going, yes, give it to me. Their 70% calories come from rice. They want to be able to expand their food production and diversity. So they're willing to go with it. So once again, the hunger draws the technology to it. Uh, so it's one of many South Asian nations or others paying attention to what Bangladesh does or they yeah, turn they away. Are. Yeah. So India is in, India's interesting because you know they have BT cotton and they've completely embraced that. Right. But as far as I know, they don't have any other GM crops approved at the moment. Could be wrong there. But and China is going what direction in all this? China's kind of dithering. Mm -hmm. And you have an expectation it'll go one way or the other? Um, well, do you see, I mean, I you, you, you probably know various Chinese scientists who are working on we have one in the consortium. Rice, right, yeah. yeah. And um, so there's a question of the government being enthusiastic or enthusiastic, people being enthusiastic and enthusiastic. Not enough scientists 
What's, what, what drives this? There's what enough scientists. It? I think... Um, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know in terms of the complexity of China, Chinese politics and, mm. and what they're doing with the GM. Well, what I see is amazing stuff coming very slowly. We love slow revolutions around here. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.